The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, if you haven't, or even if you have, please check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. When you give us a good rating and a thumbs up, people find us. And that's the whole point of this podcast is to give people a message of hope and let them know that help is available. Today's episode is episode number 251. And today we have an interview with a gentleman named Brian Cuban. Brian Cuban is an attorney, author, and person in long-term recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Recognized for his memoir, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, an unflinching look at how addiction and other mental health issues shattered his successful career, he frequently speaks on the topics of addiction, legal ethics, recovery, and redemption at colleges, universities, conferences, nonprofits, and legal events across the United States and Canada. His columns have appeared, and he has been quoted on these topics, online, and in print newspapers around the world. He's a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He currently resides in Dallas, Texas with his wife and two cats. Brian is the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban. The Ambulance Chaser is his first novel and recently was published, available on Amazon. So without further ado, let's speak to Brian Cuban. Brian Cuban, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and share your story with us. It's an absolute pleasure to be invited on. Thank you. Oh, you are more than welcome. Take us back and tell us, like, tell where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And how did that segue into alcohol and drugs? Sure. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a baby boomer. Grew up there in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I am the middle of three boys. I have an older brother, Mark. People know him from Shark Tank and the Mavs. I have a younger brother, Jeff. Uh, I am the mid. I'm, I'm the middle, obviously. And uh, my mother is still with us. She lives in Pittsburgh. My father passed about three and a half years ago. And it's important to understand my childhood to understand how that did segue into addiction. Uh, so Mark as the firstborn was very outgoing, uh, very entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, even as a teenager selling this door to door, selling that door to door. I remember our local newspaper went on strike and he and his buddies barely old enough to drive, uh, drove out to Cleveland, which is about 200 miles from Pittsburgh, bought their newspapers, drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner downtown for twice what they paid for them. Well, you kind of knew what he was going to be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. My younger brother, Jeff, was a jock, a good-looking kid, a nationally ranked wrestler at Mount Lebanon High School where we went just outside of Pittsburgh. The beer parties, the dates, the prom, you know, all those things. And all the things that I associated with acceptance. And I was classic middle child syndrome. I was shy. I was withdrawn and I, I wore anything negative said to me as who I was like a skin tight suit. And unfortunately, I was a heavy kid too, trending on obese. Uh, 
Mm. And unfortunately, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to everyone watching this podcast, I do not blame my mother or my parents for what I went through. Parents do not cause addiction. Parents do not cause eating disorders. There is a difference between cause and correlation. There is no parent blaming. Right. So there was a lot of fat shaming in my household. I used to come home from school and I would uh, open the cabinet and I'd pull out a can of Chef Boyardee ravioli. Uh, do they still have Chef Boyardee? And I'd eat it right out of the can, <laughs> the old style can opener. And we didn't have a microwave, so you stick the spoon in. And my mother would come home from selling real estate and she would walk into the kitchen and say, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things my great grandmother uh, said to my probably said to my grandmother. Uh, I came from an Eastern European Jewish family, a very the typical, uh, the stereotype Jewish grandmother, the <laughs> relationship with food, eat, eat, eat. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her, uh, according to my mom, uh, paranoid schizophrenic uh, mother who was diagnosed that. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother did spend time in a mental, in a, in a uh, psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, but not knowing these things as a you know, young boy growing up at a time when cell phones were two cups attached to a string, right? And social networking was playing uh, dodgeball on the basketball court. I grew depressed to hear these things. And I began to eat more Chef Boyardee ravioli and more Chef Boyardee ravioli. And I grew to be a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. And it so often happens when kids per- change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, the bullying started, the fat shaming, the fat teasing. You know, you're a fat pig. Well, you must have talked to my mom. You need to go to Sears and Roebuck back when Sears was a thing and get your a bra for your man boobs. Ugh. And I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor as a shield against the pain mm-hmm. of these taunts. I kind of built up the brick wall of the sad clown so the kids wouldn't know, or the funny clown, right? The class clown. So they wouldn't know how bad it hurt. Uh, yeah, I'm headed to Sears right now. Yeah, I'm going to let out another belt loop. And I would laugh with them, but it hurt so much. Mm. This bullying all culminated in what I call the day of the gold pants. My brother Mark had given, and this was my freshman year in high school, back when disco was just becoming in. Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta, if any of your listeners have seen it. (laughs) My brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. He was very into the disco scene, and this was 76 or 77. He was very into it. And... He gave me these pants, and I love my brother. We're very close. And I decided I was going to wear these pants to school as much as I could. But they fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out. But I didn't care. And I wore these pants to school, and the kids made fun of them and joked. And I'm walking home from school one day with these kids. It was it was uh, three or four kids who were popular kids, but they're also bullies. But in my mind... You know, they are the kids who are getting their first date, their first kiss, walking down the hallway before the lockers, holding hands with the girls, going to the concerts, all the things that I wanted. And so I hung around them, hoping it would be like a fraternity hazing. And one day they'd say, "Okay, you're one of us now, Brian. Mm. That's not how bullying works. We're about a mile from my house on the sidewalk along this busy street in Pittsburgh. I'm wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. They're making fun of them. And they start pulling at them. 
in pants tear. And then all of a sudden it is like bees on honey, like rabid dogs. Now they're just pulling and tearing at them. And they physically assaulted me, took these pants off, ripped them off me in the shreds, threw them out in the street down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, my tube socks, and my kids' tennis shoes. And they went on high-fiving like they'd done the funniest thing over as kids can be cruel, right? They were cruel back in the 70s, and they're cruel now, although in a much more insidious way with the internet and social media. Uh, So... I walked out in the street, I picked up the shreds, I covered up my tidy whities and waddled home. People gawked, no one stopped. And I got home and I walked down into our basement in Pittsburgh and it was these wooden stairs. Nobody was home, it was funeral quiet. And the stairs creaked. I remember the stairs creaked and with every creak as I walked down, I felt like the whole world could hear my shame. My brothers, my parents, the kids who did it, you know, the girls in the school, it, like these creeks reverberated throughout the world. And I got to the bottom and I found a wastebasket. I pulled up the trash and I put these shreds at the bottom of the trash, hoping that would bury my shame. But that's not how trauma works. Trauma threads, trauma remembers, and trauma stays with us. And it was right around then that I remember seeing a different Brian in the mirror, my reflection in the bathroom or in the school window, in a mall window, a Brian who would never be loved, this fat pig monster who would never be loved, never have a girlfriend, never go on a date, never be loved by his mother or anyone. Although my mother loved me dearly and was just dealing with her psychological issues at a time when a woman couldn't talk about it, right? You could lose your children or be institutionalized. So you just didn't talk about it. And, uh, and that was the beginning, I think, uh, just kind of a perfect storm of a uh, submissive, shy, withdrawn personality, uh, a traumatic act, the social, the genetic possibly. And I was just, uh, I, I, I just saw this monster. And so as you might imagine, I was very happy to get out of Pittsburgh. I went on to Penn State University, 1979, thinking it was going to be a whole new Brian. I'd make friends, maybe even kiss a girl, maybe even get a girlfriend. So my father drives me up to Penn State, which is about 150 miles from Pittsburgh. It's this beautiful fall day, and I'm in my dorm, and my dad's helping me unpack. I'm looking out in this square rectangular window into the parking lot, and there are kids unpacking. They're talking to each other, and I make contact eye contact with this curly brown haired girl and I start sweating and I envision my entire life with this girl in 15 seconds. We're going to date, we're going to get married and we're going to have two and one half children and my life is okay now. It wasn't a smile, it was a smirk. Uh, She puts her hands over her mouth just like this. Ugly, ugly. Oh. Now, I'm not the first kid to have a nasty thing said to him by a girl, right? But we all respond based on our genetic, social, environmental programming. Another kid may have said ugly back. Another kid may have used an obscene gesture or shrugged it off. But I was somebody who already felt ugly. And again, I'm not blaming this girl. Difference right. between cause and correlation. If it's not this, it would have been something else. Right. And uh, it was right, when that happened, I remember thinking that my entire life was out of control. That I was ugly. Again, I would never 
have, I wasn't going to get this girl. I wouldn't have any girl. I would be alone all my entire life. What did I have control over as an 18 year old now going just barely 18 year old as a freshman at Penn State? What I, I had control over food. That was it. And so I decided I would restrict my food intake to no longer be ugly and win this girl's affection. And I developed an eating disorder as a freshman at Penn State. And I transitioned right into binging and purging, bulimia, wow. at a time when nobody was talking about eating disorders. Right. It was not, I know this is an addiction show, but it's important to understand. Yeah. Back in 1979, before Karen Carpenter would pass away in 1983 from complications to anorexia, bringing eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight, mm-hmm. I was this guy who was binging and purging. I didn't know what it meant. It was an instinctive act. But here's what I did know. Every time I did it, had this feeling of peace come over me like the next day that girl would like me the next day my mother would love me the next day those bullies would accept me but that's not but then the feel that feeling went away it only lasted a few seconds almost like a cocaine high (laughs) and it swept the shame of engaging in an act that I did not have a definition for did not understand but I knew that guys didn't stick their fingers down their throat and in very short order I transitioned to alcohol to deaden how I feel, felt. And moving into my sophomore year at Penn State, before I knew it, I was drinking. Uh, I was, you know, and then I turned 21 and I was going into state stores, or that's what our liquor stores in, in Pennsylvania. And I was buying uh, these mini bottles of tequila and uh, going out in the alleys at Penn State and drinking the bottles just so I could get drunk to get, so I could get drunk in the hopes that when I go up to the bar to get drunker, I would be a different Brian. Be like my brother Jeff, all or Mark, charismatic, and this and that. And then, uh, but all I would do is get drunk and obnoxious, <laughs> and even more shy. Uh, and I was drinking alone in these alleys before I was going to class. Uh, you know, I was going to class hungover. I was going to class drunk. And uh, at Penn State, I became, you know, it wasn't a diagnosis, a quote unquote alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I put it in air quotes because it's a label, right? If yep. I was diagnosed, yep. it would be alcohol use disorder. Yep. But uh, it's a very helpful label sometimes to, fit, to learn we have a problem for the self-awareness. But uh, that is where the drinking started. You know, the, 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 the drinking started my uh, going into my sophomore year at Penn State University. But you still could function in, in, the, in class and you graduated, right? Well, I had a kind of an easy major. I was a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a cop. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the, the baby laxative for the blow. But uh, that would have worked out well. And uh, yeah, I, I, was able to, I was able to pull it together for exams. And I was able to graduate from Penn State uh, with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And, but my, going my junior into my senior year, I'm sitting in the placement office and I'm looking at through police officer jobs. And there are two guys next to me who, uh, who were talking about taking the LSATs, uh, law school admission tests. And I start listening to them and they wanted, they're from Pittsburgh and they're talking about wanting to be lawyers. And I'm listening and the bells start going off in my head. Ding, ding, ding. Hmm. Not the bells of, I, I, I really want to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I, I, there were no lawyers in my family. I'd never thought about being a lawyer. They were the bells of, Law school is three years. I can, stay in, I can stay in school three more years and I can drink, I can binge and purge, 
And I had also developed uh, exercise bulimia, which is running uh, obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. So my days at Penn State were literally drinking, exercising, and binging and purging. Very stressful on the body. Yeah. I can, but they were my survival habits. They were my Linus security blanket, right, from Peanuts yep. that I always had with me. Yep. And that was all I knew. It was all I knew. I wasn't looking three years out. I was looking tip of my nose. And if I could spend three more years in school at the tip of my nose, that made perfect sense to me, surviving. Because otherwise I have to give up these things to the world and I own them. Yep. So it made perfect sense to me to go to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law for those reasons. And that's it. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Now, did you, did you progress to cocaine while you were in school or did that happen no. later? Or? Oh, okay. That happened later. Okay. So uh, as you might imagine, uh, and we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll skim through law school. As you might imagine, I, I, I walked in the doors of law school as an alcoholic, bulimic, and uh, that's not a resume for graduating, for doing well, <laughs> right? Not a resume for law review. And I graduated by the skin of my teeth, literally, but I did, but it was repeating cycles going to class drunk, going to the bars at night, cycle, cycle, cycle. And, uh, and it, it, I was so far down the, down the rung that I have reoccurring nightmares about going to get my diploma and the dean of the law school pulling it back going, psych, you didn't graduate. And I wake <laughs> up grabbing for my diploma. And the irony of that is I was so ashamed of my existence that I didn't even bother going to graduation. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So Labor Day, 1986, I decided to, I, well, I moved to Dallas, Texas. I picked up with $50 to my name and my duffel bag full of clothes. And my older brother, Mark, met me at the uh, bus station in Dallas, Texas, the Greyhound bus station. And I moved in with him. And my, and my brother, Jeff, had already moved there. So I was now with my brothers who loved me unconditionally. And to me, this was great, right? You know, everyone else, we have the bullies, we have these people, we have, you know, the fat people call me a fat pig. My brothers aren't going to do that. So that's going to fix me. And they, but that's not how it works either. Uh, it was like throwing gasoline on a fire. I was going out drinking, my drinking escalated because they're young. They didn't do drugs, but they're drinking. They're going to the bars, they're dating. I fit right in. And then in the summer of 1987, in the bathroom of an upscale bar, 
in Dallas, Texas, wearing the suit I'd owned since high school, befitting my status as a lawyer who hadn't even passed the bar yet. Uh, I discovered the one thing that for the first time in my life, at least for a few moments, allowed me to look in the mirror and finally love myself for the first time in my life. For the first time in my life, my mother loved me. For the first time in my life, that you know, the curly brown-haired girl loved me. All the girls upstairs in the bar love Brian. But most importantly, Brian loves Brian for the first time in his 26 years. Wow. I discovered cocaine. Wow. I did that first line of cocaine, and it was like nothing I had ever felt. It just swept in. It just swept in. The confidence, the self-love, that I no longer hated myself. And I, I walk upstairs to that bar. Yeah, yeah. But then it went away. And then I'm, where's the dealer? Where's the dealer? I need to have that again. I need to love Brian again. So I bought my first gram of cocaine. And it was Katie bar the door. Uh, alcohol and cocaine took over my life as a practicing lawyer. Uh, I lost my career as a lawyer. And uh, we can go through it. But it was, uh, there was, I lost my career. I took me three times. I took the bar exam three times. I failed the bar three times. Uh, jail, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, wow. three failed marriages, all relating to drugs and alcohol. So it really you know, became a cumulative process until uh, Easter weekend 2007 when I finally uh, took that first step into recovery. Yeah, what caused that? What what was we, you know, we call this podcast point of no return, because we kind of want to know, like, what made you do that? Why? What happened? Uh, it was a drug and alcohol induced two day blackout. Oh, wow. and uh, my now wife, she stood by me came home. And uh, there and I had gone out, she had gone away for the weekend. And I was in bed, she knew nothing about my issues. And two days had passed. There was cocaine everywhere. There were drugs everywhere. You know, there were the Xanax everywhere. I was just cocaining and Xanaxing my way day to day to day to night, night. And uh, that was my second trip back to uh, a local psychiatric facility. And it was standing in that parking lot that I realized there wouldn't be a third trip back mm. and that I'd be dead. And the next day I began my journey. But there oh. was so much more up to that. I mean, I was trading and in June of 2006, I was trading Dallas Mavericks championship tickets for cocaine. And there's a great story behind that if you want to hear it. But, sure. Uh, in, uh, in, this, in 2006, the Dallas Mavericks went to the NBA championship for the very first time. And my brother Mark had bought the team in January of 2000. And we had had some success, but it was our first trip to the big show, right? And as you might imagine, I was going to get some pretty good seats from those games. And I also had the opportunity to get a couple tickets for friends. So I called up my brother. I said, Mark, I want to get some tickets. Said, sure, come on over. You think I gave them to my friends? Nope. You're probably thinking I sold them on eBay for some astronomical amount. I didn't do that either because that would have been disrespectful to Mark, to the team. I took those two tickets and traded them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. Wow. Selling them on eBay was disrespectful, but trading them to my cocaine dealer was perfectly acceptable. How the mind works in addiction. Yeah. So yep. my 20th year as a practicing lawyer, celebrating high class. So my dealer shows up at my house. I was high class. He delivered, right? And uh, I hand him the tickets. He hands me this giant Ziploc baggie of cocaine. I go running up to my home office and I dump it out on this long oak wooden desk. 
looking at it like I'm Scarface, this cocaine mountain. I wanted to go and rub my nose in it. And I roll up the dollar bill and line it out. And cocaine users, we're, we can be a funny bunch, an ironic bunch, especially in pandemic times with uh, you use the hand sanitizer, or you make sure everything is pristine, but we'll stick a dollar bill up our nose that's been used by God knows who and has God knows what on it with no problem. Go figure. Wow. But cocaine had long stopped giving me now at 1980, uh, 2006, had long stopped giving me that feeling of confidence and self-love that I achieved when I did it in that bathroom. You know, yeah. All those, those decades earlier. Now it was just pain, yeah. shame and chasing the high, and chasing the high that was never going to come again. You know, there's a saying, cocaine is fun till it's not. And it was not. Yeah. And it long stopped being, you know, fun. And then came the paranoia. Mm. Well, I hear the cops outside. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> I go peeking out my window. Mm -hmm. There's no one out there, but I'm all paranoid. I take the cocaine, put it back in the giant Ziploc baggie. I hide it. I drive to a Home Depot, or it was a Lowe's. I drive to a Lowe's where I buy electrical place fade out, face plate outlets to drill in a saw. I drive back to my house. I go to the drywall upstairs to the closets with the saw and the drill. And I cut these fake rectangular electrical outlets. And I take the cocaine, put it in smaller Ziploc baggies. And I put it behind all of these fake electrical outlets, close them back up, thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the, cop, like the DEA, the cops and the drug dogs have never thought of that before. Right. And but I, I saved a little bit and I line it out and I do a little more and again just pain and shame and the paranoia again. About an hour later, I'm all paranoid that the cops are really coming. I go back to those same electrical outlets, bzz, 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 take the cocaine out, go to my master bathroom and flush it down the toilet. Oh. Now it's about nine hundred. Well, it gets worse. Now it's about nine hundred dollars worth. The next morning comes, I wake up. Did I? What? No, I didn't. Did I flush all my cocaine down the toilet? There's another game tonight. I call up my brother, get two more tickets. I call up my dealer. He shows up my house. He said, dude, you did all that last night? I didn't want to tell him I flushed it down the toilet like an idiot. I said, yes, I did it all. Okay, here you go. Give him, give him the tickets. He gives me another bag, another Ziploc bag of cocaine. Go up to my home office, rinse, wash, repeat. Dump oh. it out on the desk. Right? Line it out, get all paranoid, bzz, 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 hide it, take it back out later in the evening, go back to that same bathroom again, drop to my knees like I'd done so many times before, hoping or praying for someone or something to take away my pain and my shame that had just been my entire life. That's all I'd ever known in the self hatred and flushed it down the toilet again. Wow. They say when Dallas flushes, it runs downhill to Houston. Oh, so people in Houston, we had a little hopping <laughs> step that night, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> quote, unquote, insanity of addiction, doing the yeah. same thing the same way over and over and expecting a different result. But yeah. we know it's not, right? It's a biological brain-based process that affects so many of us. Yep. So then that it was, was the life. next, it was the next year then that you ended up in the psych ward for the second time and yes. decided to get yes. clean. Yes, and that was after a near suicide attempt in the summer of 2005, when I lost all hope, all hope. And that is when you when you suffer from depression and lose hope, that's dangerous, especially when you add drugs to the, drugs and alcohol to the mix. 
my, you know, my, my whiskey and my cocaine. And uh, it led up, it was a, one of the really terrible points of the process where I had lost all my clients. Uh, I was, I was going to the courtroom under the influence. I was doing cocaine in the federal courthouse, the state courthouse. Did I know it was wrong? Of course I know, knew it was wrong. Did I know I could go to jail? Of course. What's the definition of addiction? Obsessive compulsive drug seeking behavior in the face of known and probable consequences, right? Of course I knew it was wrong, but uh, couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And I was just Xanaxing and all, I was Xanaxing through the day and cocaining through the night, just not even existing, not even existing. And yeah. uh, I lost hope and decided to end my life by suicide the summer of 2005. And uh, fortunately, I, uh, a friend who I'd sent a disturbing email to uh, contacted my two brothers. They came in my house. I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. And uh, it was really just in time. And they took the weapon and they, that's when they took me of my first of my first trip to the psychiatric hospital, kicking and screaming, kicking mm-hmm. and screaming. They're trying to save my life and I just want them out of my life. So I can go back to the people who truly love me. At yep. least until the cocaine Dope dealer. Runs out. Yeah. yeah. At least until the cocaine runs out. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You don't judge me. They weren't having that, but they couldn't make me do what I didn't want to do and I wasn't ready. That's right. And then uh, my solution to that was to distance from my family after they took me back home and took my car keys and said, stay in my, stay in your house for two weeks and everything will be okay. That's mm-hmm. not how addiction works anyways, mm-hmm. either. My only thought to that was my drug dealer delivers, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I was right back out. And then, uh, and then in 2006, uh, I met a girl at a bar. Uh, I was out celebrating my birthday, you know, all coked up and she doesn't, she didn't drink much and she didn't do drugs and she moved in with me. And you know, what's funny. I remember when she moved in with me, a buddy of mine who I partied with says, how's that going to work? You do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. And I said, you know, I'm going to stop. This Mm. is going to cause me to stop. So I'm starting to think about it, right? The first stage of change. I'm starting to think about it, but I guess I didn't think about it enough because she moved in and uh, went away for the weekend. Boom. I went out, did my blow, had a blackout. She came and that was my second trip. But she stood by me. She stood by me. We dated for over a decade. I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And uh, we've been married going over, uh, going over five years now. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And so how long have you been clean and sober, Brian? Uh, over 14 and a half years, April 8th, 2007. That's amazing. I mean, Thanks. very uh, well done. Thank you. And yep. I began in the rooms of 12 Step. Okay. And that's, I'm in the rooms, of, you know, I, virtually now, uh, it, it's virtual. I do speakers meetings and stuff. But uh, I also, I'm still in counseling today to heal all the trauma in the little boy, heal that little boy. And I'll tell you, you know, the first time I walked into the rooms of 12 step, I sat down and I was given the, uh, my, my psychiatrist, he gave me the option of, uh, of treatment, but I refused. I refused. Okay. I was given two options, 12 steps of treatment. And there are other recovery paths, right? But mine had to be abstinence. There was, I wasn't going to do a line of cocaine a week and it was going to be great. <laughs> it was either, if it was there, it was gone. Uh, and the alcohol too. So my path had to be abstinence. But uh, he gave me two choices and I refused treatment. And I remember he, he, he brought up a 12 step and I knew what it was. And I said, I'm not going to 12 step. There are no lawyers in 12 step. I walked in there and half the people I knew were lawyers. 
for lawyers I knew. And I said, I can't go, doctor. And I really said this, I can't go. I see them smoking out there. Secondhand smoke will kill you, right? There's only that. I know. But I walked in and when I sat down for the first day, I didn't really care whether I was an alcoholic or not. You know what I wanted when I sat down the first day? What's that? I wanted for the first time in my life to wake up the next morning walk to the mirror birthday suit naked love my love who i saw in that reflection without the aid of drugs or alcohol if, if, if sitting in that room would allow me to love myself for the first time in my life i would sit wow sitting yep that's awesome that's really awesome as i say very well done i know it's not easy um yeah but very well done on staying clean and sober yeah, it, I mean, uh, you have to adjust. Uh, you, you you adjust your routines and you adjust everything, especially during you know pandemic times. But uh, you know, I love sharing my story and uh, I love uh, you know paying it forward, uh, sharing my experience during the hope because I think every time you share, I'm a big I'm a big fan of people with platforms uh, sharing their experience, strength, and hope because you give other people hope. Yeah, doesn't mean they're going to take the path. But, you know, hope hope is something that can manifest itself when you least expect it, right? Absolutely. Why, why didn't hope manifest itself in 2005 when I had a weapon on my nightstand? I don't know. If we could figure those things out, we'd win the Nobel Prize for addiction. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And that's why we do the podcast, because we just want to yeah. tell people that hope is available. That's right. Hope is there. I mean, Brian, you had a book come out recently, and... Um, Unlike some of the people that have been on the podcast whose books mainly are memoirs, and I think you did that as well, this is a fiction book, and I want you to tell just a little bit about how it came about. Sure. It is called The Ambulance Chaser. It is about a Pittsburgh personal injury lawyer named Jason Feldman who struggles with drugs and alcohol and also finds himself uh, accused of the murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior Okay. he knew. He is arrested for her murder, and he flees, becoming a fugitive from justice, to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save his kidnapped son. Wow! So yeah, it, it was it was a fun process, and uh, I came to write it, and, and it's done very well. It opened uh, it opened December seventh as the number one uh, book scan, which judges all books, you know, all books, the number one debut thriller. Uh, when it opened December 7th. So, awesome. Uh, yeah, it came out and I had the list pulled and I saw people like Stephen King and John Grisham. Whoa. But uh, it's just a snapshot in time, right? But it's still kind of surreal to see that. Yeah. But it came about uh, as a result of a uh, kind of a dark dream that I had, that I had, a reoccurring dream about a childhood friend of mine growing up in Pittsburgh and we're throwing bodies. I know this is dark <laughs> bodies into this bonfire and we're staring at, we're watching the bodies burn and they're staring with these eight ball eyes back at us. And I wake up in the dream, all discombobulated and shaking and wondering why I haven't been arrested for these murders. Right. Did I murder someone and why haven't I been arrested? And I wake up very disquieted and I would have this dream over and over. And it's definitely the kind of dream you discuss with your therapist and you're trying to figure out. And what yeah. I do. But one day I'm out for a run and I'm all, and I'm, again, I'm disquieted because of this dream. What, what does it mean? And it suddenly occurs to me that there are characters, there's a plot, old bodies coming back to haunt the present, not new, 
but there are new there are new no new plots and novels there are only new and interesting characters and, and situations and so i decided to write the novel and that is how it came about and obviously you write what you know yep oh so, uh jason a lawyer yep yeah lawyer yep. and a personal injury lawyer as i've been yep. and i haven't practiced in 10 years but uh jason struck his inner struggle is drugs and alcohol cocaine and alcohol is drugs of choice as were mine and uh i i, I i'm very proud of it and uh and it has done so far as of this podcast very well and has gotten very good word of mouth. Awesome. Awesome. I think that's great. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I think your story is going to resonate with some of our listeners and they're, you know, hopefully that they, they get something out of it and they reach for treatment. That's always the hope that yeah, we there, have. There's always, I mean, there is only one. I do a lot of speaking. And when I speak, it's funny. I'll say, what is the one what is the one and only prerequisite to recovery? And people raise their hand, you have to want it. This, that. No, be alive. Mm. Stay alive. As long as you are alive, there is hope. It's a good point. That's a very good point. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you for allowing me to do it. Great story. Uh, Brian is obviously a really good storyteller and his story hopefully resonates with one of you listening and you will understand that you can get into treatment. There's help available. Never lose hope. You know, I love his point. I've never heard anybody say that before, but the one thing that you have to have if you're going to get clean and sober is you have to be alive. And uh, yeah, so that's our hope for you that you get into treatment if you need it, that if you have a loved one who needs treatment, you get them into treatment. We will be back again. We are gonna continue with the Purdue Sackler panels that we have because there are a lot of notable people who are involved in that whole situation. And we wanna make sure that it ends up with a good result. So thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.